0: Hello, my name is Jocelyn McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, things are going to get a little bit musical.
1: Heaven, <laughs> I'm in heaven. <laughs> That actually, that wasn't even in any of Vincent Minnelli's musicals.
0: I'm glad I pointed to you, because I didn't even know what song I would sing. Because <laughs> we're talking about Vincent Minnelli. Vincente? Vincent?
1: Every time I heard somebody refer to him, it was Vincent Minnelli.
0: And he's the guy who made An American in Paris. He made The Bad and the Beautiful, Meet Me in St. Louis. He's one of the top guys when people talk about classic musicals, along with Stanley Donnan, the uh, guy that directed Singing in the Rain. Mm-hmm. And was he a filmmaker that you had any familiarity? with in the sense of like I had some familiarity
1: with them because I'd probably seen half dozen movies over the years but in no way uh, am I an expert on him in no way had I done much serious reading about him so this is another one of those weeks gang where uh, I'm a little bit of a
0: fraud <laughs> uh, well listen we can't do a podcast every week and be on an expert on every subject yeah so this is more of a Discovery. Uh,
1: I watched four of his movies this week, and I've never seen a bunch of Vincent Minnelli movies back-to-back like this. Mm-hmm. And I feel as it always does, it gave me a new appreciation for him as a
0: filmmaker. He's a filmmaker that people like Cage Cinema would always hold up as like a pinnacle of the auteurist theory.
1: So here are, I think, the two challenges for us going forward in this episode. One of the challenges with a guy like Minnelli is uh, his movies are very collaborative. Uh, he is an auteur, but at the MGM musicals, so is Gene Kelly. So is Fred Astaire. These are guys who had a huge amount of input. And also, you know, uh, songwriters like Adolf Greed and betty comden and not to mention arthur freed the guy who ran the unit these are people who are as involved in the shaping of these movies as the director and then the other challenge is much of what's great about vincent minnelli is visual yes. and sensation and it's hard to get into that without just listing off a bunch of colors and shapes and camera angles
0: so vincent minnelli got his start working in like the theatrical milieu. He did a lot of like reviews and stuff like that on the stage, eventually moving his way up to Broadway and his signature was his visual sense. At one point uh, he was doing a pastiche of like flashbacks and the way that film look in the Hollywood system and he coated everything in like clear plastic so it would have like a little out of focus look to it on stage. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) And like that's what he was known for, like costume design and the way that he would create visual images on stage. And the other weird thing about Vincent Minnelli is that he was also a pushover. If you read any biography about him, he's often a guy that would, like, toe the company line and wouldn't fight with the people that he was working with. And that's because, according to a lot of people that knew him, he was fairly inarticulate in the way that he spoke. And at the same time, while he knew what he wanted, he would approach it many different avenues. A lot of actors like Judy Garland, which he would later go on to marry, would complain that like he would ask her to do a line like, oh could you just like soften it a little bit? Okay, now do it as if you're imagining that like you just saw your mother for the first time. Uh-huh. And to the point that the actors sometimes didn't know what performance they were giving because there were so many different variations.
1: Uh, that's, I mean I'm not surprised that he was a largely kind of instinctive artist, I mm-hmm. mean as as many, you know, visual artists are.
0: And when people wrote about him, like in the American cinema, Andrew saras said that, you know, he made beautiful movies, but there wasn't much of like a spirit behind them or something that influenced them. I
1: believe uh, his exact words were his art was more visual than personal, more decorative than meaningful, at least in the early stage of his career, in the early stage when he was doing musicals. And then later on, he went into drama. But then Andrew saras also said a rather beautiful turn of phrase, he believes implicitly in the power of his camera to turn trash into art and corn into caviar.
0: So like Will said, Manelli um, would be given projects. Like it was very rare that he would chase after things. Like Freed, the producer that was working at MGM at the time, would call him up and be like, hey, we have this project. You want to do it? And he didn't really have much of a choice. He'd be like, yeah, okay, I'll <laughs> do it. Contract. And then he would try to bring a visual sense in the way that he moved the camera and like the way that he portrayed the story to give it meaning or depth.
1: And I think he succeeded brilliantly at his best. Uh, Meet Me in St. Louis or St. Louis, uh, which is one of his most famous films and which I think I like somewhat more than you
0: yeah i'm not a big fan of it um
1: but you know that's a movie about the coming of age really and and the loss of innocence of this uh wealthy victorian era family and it and there's something in the visual style the the warmth but also the intensity of it like it makes your eyes water a little bit and it's so it's so rich but it looks almost like uh, an idealized memory
0: and that's a movie that Manelli was given and he read the script and he went there's nothing here like it's based on these famous short stories but there's no through line and there's no emotional depth so he had to bring that himself to the film and mm-hmm. that's probably the reason that it's remembered as fondly as it is
1: the other reason i think it's remembered as fondly is because of judy garland mm-hmm. who is about as complex a screen presence as there is i mean she's somebody who can convey great warmth and great happiness but there's also a real fragility to her
0: well i think me in st louis is a good example louis yes. how are we supposed to say it
1: I, I heard martin scorsese call it meet me in st louis and yet when you watch the movie it says meet me in st louis louis so, <laughs> so who
0: knows who, yeah <laughs> obviously not martin scorsese yeah hack <laughs> <laughs> in meet me You have what is this picturesque kind of, as you say, memory with all these complex characters kind of circling the narrative. And every frame is so dense, Mm -hmm. you know. And it's like you would expect because it's a musical, it's a classic that it's... Kind of emotional throughway would be simple, but it's not because everybody is going through different stuff, including the kids who are sociopaths. Look <laughs> the because they throw a dummy on a uh, streetcar track, hoping that it will derail it and kill the p- people on it. Well, it was a simpler time. <laughs> yeah, that's right, <laughs> where the rich could get away with whatever they wanted to, well, as opposed to now.
1: When you were a kid, didn't you ever think of like you know throwing a throwing a snowball onto the, onto a car as it was passing?
0: Never, but. We did used to put stuff on train tracks just to see them explode (laughs) until they put a fence up around the train track near my house, which I assume because they were tired of cleaning up apples and stuff like that (laughs) off of the trains. Wow.
1: Don't you feel guilty? You're not going to look down on these uh, beautiful little children in their their stately Magnificent Amberson's home anymore, are you? (laughs) Who
0: frame a man for like beating up a child. (laughs) Uh, How about the part where Judy Garland
1: sings, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas?
0: I mean, that's the film's most famous moment and the one that is the, uh most misremembered because it's a song that is usually uh, sung very fondly. It's one that Judy Garland would go on to sing throughout her career and that's what kind of popularized it. While in the film she's singing it to a child who's weeping uncontrollably which according to uh, Manelli, he went and told the kid that if she doesn't perform he'll kill a dog and the dog will die a horrible death oh, wow. because he was requested to do that by the kid's parents and he promised after that he would never do that kind of emotional manipulation to get a performance. Good.
1: I think the movie conveys something about that sense of, like, all things
0: must pass Mm -hmm. and, you know, everything beautiful will end eventually. But I don't get that feeling because the film at the end of the day is about oh no we get to stay and we all get to be happy.
1: I was a little disappointed by that ending too.
0: <laughs> if you look at most of Minnelli's films, if you cut out the last five minutes of almost all of them they would be tragedies. American in Paris Yeah, it's the exact example. Same thing We should talk about uh, Manelli's first film Cabin in the Sky because mm-hmm. there's a few notable reasons that like it's actually really interesting. Um, this was an adaptation of a Broadway play that actually didn't do that well and is notable specifically that it has an all-black cast. Mm -hmm. There's not one white person in the movie. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Minelli, when he was making it, he and the producers made a big kind of like uh, publicity tour, saying that they went to the NAACP to make sure that the script was, you know, not offensive. It wasn't Uncle Toming it or anything like that. And there's something I don't know respectable about that, even though that the film is still racist and deals in stereotypes.
1: I think it's about as enlightened as you're going to get from
0: at that like, point a in Hollywood time. Hollywood yeah. studio movie 100%. made by white people. It's got a
1: great cast. Yes, it does. uh, Led by Eddie Rochester Anderson from The Jack Benny Show, uh, also starring Lena Horne, really foxing it up as uh, the town... um What's a gentlemanly way to put it?
0: Uh, <laughs> um, the town bad girl. Yeah, a woman of pleasure, I guess. Yeah,
1: and Ethel Waters. Ethel Waters plays the uh, stern and strong wife of Rochester. Uh,
0: yeah, who's smarter than anybody else yeah. and can trick them and just wants her husband to be happy, even though that the film starts with him trying to go on the straight and narrow, stop his gambling and stuff like that. But he can't control himself and he ends up shot Uh, in a kind of borrow room brawl type situation. And then the rest
1: of the movie is the uh, dispute between heaven and hell for Eddie Rochester Anderson's soul. And because of the power of Ethel Waters praying, uh, he's given a second chance. But, uh, you know, hell is always nipping at his uh, heels and he often finds himself tempted by Lena Horne.
0: And this is a film that, like, while I was watching it, it felt kind of weird. For the first thirty minutes, I, I could only think to myself, isn't this Supposed to be a musical, and then I learn later on it's because they actually cut a bunch of musical numbers out of it.
1: There was, I originally a scene of um, Lena Horne in a bubble bath, I believe, but yeah. that was considered too risque.
0: Exactly. <laughs> so that was cut out. Although
1: and- the movie is pretty frank about sex, I think, mm-hmm. or about as frank, and maybe I don't know. I'm just talking out of my ass here, uh, but I would speculate it might be like the sexual relationship between Rochester and Lena Horne is more implied because they're black, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're they're allowed to be a little franker,
0: and And while it does take the moralistic idea that, like, jazz music is bad Mm -hmm. or going to the bar is bad and you'll end up in hell, if you do these things, it also takes joy in that as well. Like, Duke Ellington is on stage performing. So it's like, oh, wait, isn't this fun stuff that you should Mm -hmm. go do? Mm -hmm. And the fact that it has no white cast allows it to feel very organic. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's one scene where a song is portrayed and suddenly a bunch of stereotypes just come into frame (laughs) and kind of dance around with them which is probably the film at its worst but at its best, it shows strong characters wanting to do the right thing and finding clever ways to get around, like, going to hell.
1: And everyone's uh, funny, and they give good performances, and uh, great
0: music. And you can see Manelli already using his cameras in ways to kind of raise the material higher than you would expect something like this, which could have just been like a throwaway thing. Like, mm-hmm. he is invested in this project and making these musical numbers and this story, which has all these fantastical elements, work within itself. And just like... Like all of Manelli's films, if you cut out the last few minutes, it would be a tragedy. <laughs> but no, at the end, it's there's a happy ending and everybody lives happily ever after.
1: A movie that I watched this week that I really liked a lot was The Bandwagon from 1953, starring uh, Fred Astaire. This is kind of a meta movie. As I understand, it was very much made in the spirit of singing in the rain, which came out a year or two before in this kind of a meta showbiz satire inspired by the circumstances of its own making.
0: So this was the first Minnelli film I saw years and years ago. And while I loved all the musical numbers as a director, it made me think that Minnelli was just kind of a, you know, just put the camera here and shoot it. No sense of narrative logic, because this is essentially a review where the film will stop for like 20 minutes to show an amazing film noir pastiche dance number. I mean, I like that about it because, first of all, I find the
1: plot quite charming. Mm -hmm. The Fred Astaire, Ginger Roger movies were never big favorites of mine. I mean, the dancing's great, but the stuff in between the dancing kind of gets on my nerves. Shoe leather. Yeah. But this one, I think it's quite cute and funny throughout. But I mean, it is like a a grab bag of delights. Mm -hmm. All these little musical scenes. Because the the plot is Fred Astaire plays a washed up movie star, not unlike Fred Astaire himself. Mm -hmm. Although in real life, he was still popular.
0: Yeah, he was kind of semi-retired at the point that he made the bandwagon. Fred Astaire's like, late career is him always coming back to do Mm. more movies. Uh,
1: But he's somewhat washed up, but then he gets approached to do a big comeback on Broadway, and uh, they enlist his co-star to be, you know, the young hotshot Broadway star of the moment, who apparently was based on Jose Farrar.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Um, Although he comes across much more like Orson Welles. Mm. Um, And this young hotshot who's also the director insists on instead of having it be like a fun review it has to be a dark and gloomy modern day faust story yeah and that flops and so then they take it on the road and turn it back into a fun musical review and it climaxes with this absolutely amazing uh five the, or ten minute musical scene. the
0: thing that the movie is famous for which is like a pastiche to like film noir which just fred astaire getting in these expressionist tableaus and dancing his ass off.
1: Yeah, he plays a detective who goes into this bar and the bar is rendered on this pink set, pink floor, pink backdrop, and it has a couple of um, very minimalist pieces of set that are purple. Uh
0: It's like just dazzling to see on screen. Mm. And I wish as a musical director, which Minnelli was famous for, there was more of that in his movies because I was actually as I was doing research for this episode, a little bit underwhelmed at the impact that his musicals had on me. Like Mm. something like Meet Me in St. Louis is a very grounded musical. It's almost diegetic in the way that people sing the songs. Like you could almost buy it as if they were just singing like you would, like a normal family would together. I mean,
1: I think that's part of the appeal of the movie, though, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's a movie where the songs advance the narrative, the songs express oh, well, the emotions of the characters. Those are
0: my favorite ones. Mm-hmm. But I like it when musical numbers kind of break the reality of the film that they're in to tell those stories. Basically, the old adage of, if you're so emotional that you can't say it in words, you have to sing it. Sure. So that can break the logic of what's happening. While... Um, other than The Bandwagon and An American in Paris, his musicals are more grounded in that way from what I've been able to see. I mean, I'm sure he has more minor ones that like have great numbers in them, but mm-hmm. it, just, there's none that are, are like that masterpiece around it. Because when people usually talk about the masterpiece that Vincent Minnelli made, they talk about An American in Paris.
1: Which I think is good. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't love it.
0: So watching all these movies back to back, bring something very clear of something that Manelli went to over and over again is that men are pieces of shit. <laughs> That's almost present in all of his films, <laughs> which is unfortunate because the stars are men and they're the one leading the picture. Like An American in Paris, which won Best Picture the year that it came out. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, Singing in the Rain, which came out a year later, is a lot better.
0: It's about Gene <laughs> Kelly playing a hack artist who paints like back grounds and stuff like that. And he is
1: an American in Paris. He goes to Paris with the hope that the great masters would rub off on him.
0: Is courted by a very nice uh, lady who's treated like an old hag. (laughs) (laughs) Who's very rich. But no, Gene Kelly falls in love with a younger woman um, from Paris. And they barely know anything about each other. But it's true love in the ways that movie can only do it. But then
1: there are some uh, entanglements with uh, Gene Kelly's friend. uh, It all
0: climaxes in the reason the film is so famous, which is a, like, expressionist ballet that happens in the last 18 minutes of the movie.
1: And this ballet won a special Academy Award.
0: Did it? Yes. That's, okay. (laughs) Why did they even give it best picture after that? Like, (laughs) the Academy Awards just make up, like, (laughs) Oscars so they can give it away to something that's popular and that they believe has value. Uh Like, An American in Paris is just so light and flighty, and even the musical numbers throughout are fine, but they don't, like, blow me away in something like Singing in the Rain, where like you see those musical numbers, and you're like, "Wow, like that is amazing." Yeah.
1: Well, American Paris has got some really good ones. It's got, yeah. it's got a very charming number where he's dancing with the the kids. The, the that
0: one's really fun. Yeah. There's the one where
1: he's dancing in his apartment. Yeah, and um, you know, manelli even though he often does complicated camera work and complicated editing, he also knows when to like set the camera
0: down. Yeah, do the Fred Astaire, bring it back, show the whole body so you can see someone like Gene Kelly just do their stuff.
1: Or there's a moment in that scene when he dances out into the hallway and the camera just does this almost imperceptible like swerve Mm -hmm. as it follows him in a way that doesn't really call attention
0: to itself. I don't know. I like I wish I liked it more. But when you have something like Singing in the Rain, which came out a year later, which is just so much better on every level. Singing in the
1: Rain also has a particular spirit to it. Mm -hmm. It feels like everyone's having a lot of fun. It feels a little bit feels like there's a spontaneity there. This is like an alchemy that can't be calculated.
0: Yeah, and it seems like Manelli is often sweating to get that on screen. There's a
1: self-importance to mm. an American in Paris that isn't there in Singing in the Rain. But maybe one thing I would say in addition about Manelli's musicals, there's a good quote from Martin Scorsese because I'm Um, stitching together my opinions about Minnelli from the opinions of other people who know him better.
0: (laughs) But Martin Scorsese- You can have an opinion, Will. You watch these movies and talk about it.
1: Uh, Scorsese said, Minnelli's musical celebrated the triumph of the imaginary over the real. Any aspect of reality, no matter how trivial, can be transformed, stylized, or incorporated into a ballet.
0: And Scorsese, New York, New York, the movie that he made that was the famous flop, Is just a flat out homage to the work of Vincent Minnelli. Uh,
1: Yeah, I think at his best, uh, Minnelli, his films look like, you know, putting on Minnelli goggles Mm. and seeing the world through it. You can like in that big ballet sequence at the end of An American in Paris, this is um, his crazy version of Paris or the scene in the bandwagon when Fred Astaire is wandering around 42nd Street and he goes to you know, what looks like the Ripley's believe it or not place. And he gets into the dance with the shine guy played by uh, Leroy Daniels. Like it's his hyper stylized, poeticized version of 42nd Street.
0: Yeah. But when you say something like that, it's just like, I wish there was just a little bit more. Like I wish he just pushed it a little bit further. And I think one of the reasons that that energy is not always there and that it just pops up every now and then is that because he was a company man that was like towing that company line and you couldn't have a, a picture that was crazy throughout because then you would lose your audience yeah like i uh read a biography on minnelli um this week called minnelli the dark dreamer it does not live up to that subtitle okay. <laughs> but like it continually just enforces the idea that minnelli like just did whatever people told him to the point that he actually took the studio side when judy garland who he was married to was having like manic and depressive episodes he's Mm. like it's not the studio's fault it's like you just need to get help Mm. because the studio was the one that was telling him what to do if you want to read like a sad showbiz you know, personal life, read Minnelli's because
1: he didn't really regard himself as an auteur the way people later would. He regarded himself as, as a journeyman yeah, and, and as a stylist. Yeah. But I also think Minnelli's musicals have a personality and a, and a visual sense to them that really separates them from, say, Stanley Donan's musicals. Mm-hmm. Like in The Bandwagon or in An American in Paris, whenever there's a musical sequence, there's, the sequences are just so dense, whether it's visually But also in terms of the action on screen, that 42nd Street musical number in the bandwagon, there's just so much stuff going on. And that's Minnelli's Rococo sense.
0: Yeah, I think that Minnelli's experience working in the theatrical kind of world translates very well to the screen you see this a lot with people that worked yeah. on the stage
1: because they've got a whole stage to fill
0: exactly and they're trying to like you know with the shifting camera show different information mm-hmm. and that if you saw the play twice you would see different stuff mm-hmm. or you could be looking at it from different angles mm-hmm. and that makes it very dynamic in a way that like Manelli is super interesting like you feel that his camera is always on a crane moving <laughs> to capture the action because it's always trying to give you a different uh, bit of information for you to kind. Of swallow,
1: and I can watch like the last twenty minutes of an American in Paris probably five times in a row, and, and you see. would
0: get something different yeah. each time. Yeah. Like compared to something like La La Land, which is just ripping it off that ending and how complex an American in Paris is. Mm-hmm. Because even in the way that he stages stuff, you're like, wait, what is going on? Why is that happening? Yeah, and I'm sure that he's figured it all out. But because there's so much information, you're overwhelmed. It's too much to take in, almost. Mm. So while it sounds like I may be kind of like a little bit negative on Vincent Minnelli, his film The Bad and the Beautiful, which he made in 1952, which was a straight up drama, is one of my favorite films about Hollywood, especially classic Hollywood that I've ever seen. I love this movie. Well, this
1: is a movie that's made for movie buffs like Mm. us, because even as you watch it, if you know a lot about movies, you can... Like, it's full of all the archetypes where you can be like, oh, this is Fal Luton, this is Orson Welles, this is Alfred Hitchcock, this is, oh, that's John Barrymore. The
0: film stars Kirk Douglas as a washed up producer when the film starts, who gets three people that he worked with throughout his career a director, a leading lady and also his lover and a screenwriter and gets them together to have a little bit of a uh, Citizen Kane like flashback structure. I
1: was wondering if there was a Citizen Kane influence on this. And then I saw Paul Stewart from Citizen Kane appears in
0: it. Vincent Minnelli said that Orson Welles was one of his favorite directors <laughs> of all time and that the movie was actually a homage to Citizen Kane.
1: And there's quite a bit of Orson Welles, I think, in Kirk Douglas's performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kirk Douglas, I think, is mostly based on David O. Selznick. Yes. But, but the, the swagger he has is definitely Wells.
0: And the way that it tells a story of how creative people kind of work with each other is fascinating because Kirk Douglas is the ultimate super charismatic, passionate person that is also self-destructive and will leave people close to him behind to reach the goals that he wants. You know, I
1: mentioned that one of the challenges with dealing with Minnelli is how collaborative his films are. And, you know, the bandwagon and this one are both about the collaborative Mm -hmm. process. I mean, I guess it was something he was very attuned to.
0: And the way that one singular figure could then destroy the other people (laughs) to get the attention of it. Yeah.
1: So Kirk Douglas stars as Jonathan Shields, hotshot producer who made his bones in Hollywood by producing low budget
0: horror films like revenge of the cat man which so, was made famous by not showing the cat men, which is the exact same story that happened with val luton and jack tourneur when they made cat the cat people
1: and there's a beautiful scene uh when kirk douglas is explaining his concept for the movie where he's like what's the thing people are most afraid of and then he turns off the light and then he turns on a little lamp and he lights the face and he goes Darkness. And I love this moment because it's like one great stylist paying tribute to another great stylist. Mm -hmm. So that becomes a big success. And the director that he works with, Fred Emil, played by Barry Sullivan, uh, pitches him the idea of uh, an adaptation of this great, almost unfilmable work of literature, which. Uh, Kirk Douglas says yes we're going to do this Uh, I'm going to cash in all my chips and finally make this but also you're fired we're getting a better director for it
0: an Otto Preminger like figure if you will Mm -hmm. and after that we get the story of an actress Georgia played by Lana Turner who she and Kirk Douglas uh, get a muse kind of (laughs) artist relationship and he picks her out of like the crowd where she plays in bit parts and she's mostly drunk and kind of cleans her up and makes or a star in a costume drama.
1: And she was living in the shadow of her John Barrymore-ish
0: father. (laughs) So as you can see from all the names that we're dropping, this is a film in love with the idea of Hollywood, using all these famous stories to tell this bigger story about one man played by a scenery-chewing Kirk Douglas. And the last story of the movie
1: is... This great novelist who Kirk Douglas has lured to Hollywood to write a screenplay, and he thinks that his wife, played by Gloria Graham, is too much of a distraction. So he gets his wife to go have an affair with this other guy, and uh uh-oh, they get in a plane crash. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the screenwriter is bitter to him.
0: So the structure of the movie is the three kind of vignettes where you're just waiting for Kirk Douglas to do something bad that will make this person turn against him. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of fascinating to follow that journey because at some point you're like, well, what could he do that would make them angry? Mm-hmm. And well, Kirk Douglas is playing a self-destructive Orson Welles-like figure. So of course that he'll cheat on them or he'll betray them or he'll reveal that the nicety that he had was just hiding other secrets.
1: And I think the movie really takes its temperature from Kirk Douglas's performance. It's it's pitched really high. It's, oh,
0: the camera is always moving. It's always
1: showing off. There's always some crazy visual thing that he's doing. Even like a, a tiny moment like there's a scene where Kirk Douglas has three giant stacks of scripts on his desk mm-hmm. and it cuts to it and you see the scripts, and then you see him emerge from behind the scripts. Even like a, just a
0: throwaway moment like that, there's always some piece of visual imagination. This is a film that I only came to because I heard Martin Scorsese talk about it like so lovingly. Mm-hmm. And he also talked about like the, the sequel of the film where Kirk Douglas plays a very similar character uh, that goes to Italy to do dubbing on a movie called Two Weeks in Another, Another Town was also a a poster that, like, Scorsese put up on his wall when he moved to Hollywood because he imagined that these movies represented the idealized version of Hollywood for him. I mean, I think what Scorsese likes about these movies is the idea of these,
1: like, big, bold creatives Mm. who are doing big, bold, creative things.
0: And at the same time, they're also pieces of shit. Yeah. (laughs) Because, like, Kirk Douglas is not a good man. He is very, very bad. Yeah, and, you know, Scorsese also regards... Uh, filmmaking
1: as a mode of personal expression. And, you know, that's one of the conflicts that's at the heart of this movie. You know, at this stage in Hollywood, the producer was stronger than the director. And, you know, one of the subplots of the movie is that the Alfred Hitchcock-like filmmaker um, has a big falling out with him on the set of one of the movies because he can't function under his supervision and it's like like how creative can you be in this system Mm -hmm. you
0: know and uh, that leads to probably the film's best kind of payoff which is at this big creative (laughs) hands-on super producer. Is a shitty director and doesn't understand what makes it work. (laughs) Yeah, and
1: and that's really interesting, like kind of just as a meditation on the artistic process.
0: I think that The Bad and the Beautiful would be the first movie I would give to people if they were interested in like Vincent Minnelli's work beyond the most famous musicals Mm -hmm. because it is pitched at such a high level and it has all the things that he obviously loves about movies and being creative in a package that also reflects the reasons that people would get into Vincent Minnelli because Mm -hmm. they liked the idea of this Hollywood, Mm -hmm. which was actually incredibly toxic. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So after The Bad and the Beautiful and An American in Paris, Vincent Minnelli continued to work. He became the kind of darling of French uh, auteur theorists, Mm -hmm. but he never really had like the big hit.
1: And I think his uh, most of his dramas were not all that well received in his lifetime. I know that some of them have. Like Some Came Running, for instance.
0: Uh, uh, some Came Running is great. Yeah. Uh,
1: some of them have risen in esteem, but they were not great successes. And then he eventually returned to the musical genre also with... Old, Barbra Streisand? With Barbra Streisand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which,
0: come on, that's like a loaded of dice. He can't win with that one. <laughs> like an older man trying to like revitalize his career with something that is like in the next generation. <laughs> I haven't actually seen the movie that they made together, but you know, maybe it's great. I am a hundred percent certain it has revisionist historians on it. Sure. So the question, like we always ask ourselves is, is Vincent Minnelli an auteur? And when you, ask that question you also have to ask like what does auteur mean does it mean that there's value in every one of his films that he's repeating thematic concerns thematic concerns are going to be hard when, when you're talking about this
1: guy I mean I know that in and- Andrew Saras's book he talks about how the movies got uh, darker as he went along mm-hmm. you know Gigi and An American in Paris are much darker musicals than what came before and that led into the darker drama
0: Brigadoon Brigadoon yeah <laughs> see the darkest of the musicals see, not really it doesn't really hold up to scrutiny, yeah. does it no it does it
1: doesn't. but i definitely think he has a particular way of looking at the mm. world and uh, his movies uh, at their best are just wonderful machines of pleasure
0: yeah exactly all right so letters this week as usual you can send us a letter an important cinema club podcast at gmail.com uh the first letter is from Jessen fox hello cinephile friends will and justin well, today's the day. I finally work up courage to write in. I have to say, having my name read aloud during the Patreon list certainly motivated me. <laughs> I appreciate the recognition, and I am pleased to support the show financially. Thank you. Now, on to my letter. Your podcast often turns me on to films I know nothing about, and the episode about Harold Lloyd was no different. It was the first silent film I'd ever seen outside of The Artist, and I thought it had great gags and was well made. I was, however, disappointed to find that this film featured some offensive blackface. I watched it with a friend who is black, and it was shocking and embarrassing to expose them to that unknowingly. I guess you can't expect much from a hundred-year-old film, but that still sucked to see show. As a big fan of you two, and you do seem like thoughtful dudes, could you please give a heads up in the future when recommending films that may feature offensive imagery as such? Which movie was it? Uh, He doesn't mention it here. When you're watching films like before the... 50s i guess yeah <laughs> like yeah that offensive in your face stuff is usually present me and will if stuff like this comes up in some of the feature films that we're talking about we will try to mention it to people mm-hmm. but this brings up a good question about like watching showing films to other people and like what steps you take before you watch that film because it, it's a real tricky thing because if the film that you picked and you show to someone has offensive stuff in it or is even not good, like you're the one to blame for it.
1: Yeah. We've all been there, been been there. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's a bad feeling. Uh, I know there are certain movies that I really love that if I see them, you know, at a repertory movie theater or something, there will always be one or two, not always, but there may sometimes be one or two moments that I dread a little bit Mm. because, so there's a scene in duck soup, Mm -hmm. one of my very favorite movies when Groucho makes a joke about a then current song called that's how darkies were born or something, something like that. And, you know, even if you know the context of that gag, it's not a very good gag. And he he sets it up with this monologue like oh the Headstrongs met the Armstrongs and that's how darkies were born. And yeah. it always lands with a with a thud. And I always dread that whenever I watch Duck Soup. Mm-hmm. I think we also maybe have experiences of putting on a movie that we remember loving. Mm. And then um, either we've changed or the times have changed. Or it's just like, I don't know if you've watched Chasing Amy recently.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, that movie doesn't really hold up. I, it, it's weird because like when that happens and you can feel the person you're with kind of like turn to look at you and be like, yeah why are you showing me this film? Like, it's it's so offensive or there's bad stuff in it. And yeah. you're like, well, I remember liking it or I heard that it was good. Yeah, I, There's, like, almost no way around it other than watching the film before you watch it with someone else. All I can
1: say about blackface is, like, uh,
0: classic films offer many rewards,
1: but that's mm. something you're going to have to be prepared for.
0: So you either, <sighs> you go in... Probably my suggestion would be that if you're showing like a classic film like that to someone, just ask them, like, this is probably going to feature some stuff that's, like, really offensive. Mm-hmm. Are you okay watching it with mm-hmm. that in mind? Yeah. Because they may just be like, ah, you know what? That may be a little bit uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. Then you're like, okay, no problem. Let's watch something else. Birth of a Nation. I <laughs> hear this one's a classic. There's a Fred Astaire movie. It, I don't think it's Swing Time. I, I
1: can't remember which one it is, but there's a Fred Astaire movie where he does a whole musical number in blackface. Uh, it's one it of the major
0: ones too. Holiday Inn. Or even like a movie that seems super easy and fun, like the Mickey Rooney picture, Babes in Arms, which is all about kids showing adults how like times have changed and that they should grow up ends with Mickey Rooney putting on a blackface musical number. Man,
1: I saw Babes in Arms on public television television in the 90s when i was a kid could you imagine that showing on public television no
0: never it would never show 20 straight minutes of minstrel show (laughs) and the letter finishes up that being said you talked about how harold lloyd failed to make the transition to talkies. Who is someone that did the transition well from that era? And anyone else you feel transitioned well from one era of film to the another? Really love the podcast, y'all. Sorry for such a long message, but it was my very first. Look forward to your thoughts. Your pal Jessen. Uh, Laurel and Hardy, I guess, probably did even better in the sound era. Uh, Hitchcock did very well transitioning from si- silence to the sound
1: era. Yeah, good for him. I mean, you know, uh, Chaplin sort of was able to... Uh,
0: he was so rich and he could... Do whatever he wanted. Do whatever he wanted. Uh, Yeah. But even he kind of struggled afterward, didn't he? With the idea of sound. Because a lot of the people working in the silent film era sound was such a threatening thing that completely changed how they made movies. You know, I understand that Buster Keaton was very excited by the idea
1: of sound. Hmm. He he didn't plan to do much talking in his own movies, but he was excited by the idea of having sound crashes and and stuff like that just as a whole other group
0: of tools in his arsenal. Well, it's a shame he ended up working for a studio that completely crushes Spirit. Uh, Thank you very much for the letter and moving on. And the next letter goes... Love the show. Mm. What a great subject. Hi Justin and Will. Greetings from Australia, aka the Canada of the South. Has it been called that? That's not a knife. (laughs) Classic Australian bit. Yeah. Thanks for turning me on to a bunch of directors I would otherwise have neglected. Edgar G. Ulmer, Ed Wood, and Guy Madden in particular. I wonder if you have considered doing an episode on everyone's favorite psychomagical scallywag, Alejandro Jodorowsky. I myself still don't know what to make of him after seeing four of his films, so I wonder what he means to you guys, if anything. Sincerely, Charlie. I'm a fan. I'm a fan as well. Yeah. Uh, It was much easier to talk about him when he had seemingly disappeared uh, (laughs) 10 years ago, and now he's all over the place. Some of his um, uh, voodoo-ish, weird
1: mysticism stuff isn't for me, but I thought Dance of Reality was really good.
0: And I'm a huge fan of El Topo. Yeah. Uh, The Holy Mountain, I appreciate, but uh, yeah it's a bunch of crazy imagery i love the holy mountain do you yeah and i i think it's
1: just amazing that it exists Mm -hmm. and that it
0: was funded by the producer of the beatles i mean it's it's
1: unfathomable to me that a movie can have that much stuff in it so much stuff in it (laughs) have you
0: ever listened to the commentary track jodorowsky does where he just explains the meaning behind everything as it comes up on screen because it's
1: not a very dialogue heavy movie either
0: yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, And Charlie continues his letter. P.S. As a long-term fan and short-term Patreon subscriber, I can confirm I was only getting half the important cinema club experience until I recently stopped being such a Scrooge. The episode on Bodied was a wonderful collision of worlds for me as a battle rap fan, and I can't wait until it reaches our shores. Wow. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, people who aren't Patreon subscribers. Yeah, did you hear that? (laughs) Yeah. Only half of the experience. You're
1: getting some really good uh, battle rap information (laughs) behind the paywall.
0: (laughs) From the two battle rap experts justin DeClue and will sloan and by that i mean not at all don't get your hopes up guys uh this week on our patreon we did a special episode to honor the (laughs) to honor (laughs) the release of eli ross death wish we end up talking about bruce willis and the nature of revenge films and spoiler did we like the new death wish movie You'll have to find out. (laughs) So I guess not a spoiler at all. (laughs) No, we didn't like it. Come on. So you just want to hear us talk about why it's not good? Get the Patreon episode. Now
1: it's time for How
0: How Did This Get Made? made. (laughs) Uh, I just want to thank Patreon subscribers because obviously it makes a difference because this guy wrote us a letter. So just to thank all of our new Patreon subscribers, they include Ziad, Lynn, Justin, Jesse, Amy, Brian, Jordan, Charlie, Sean, Yoon, Tom, Sean, and Serena. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers and I apologize if I miss somebody. Next week we're going to be doing an episode on outsider filmmakers. Now I'm not going to mention who we'll be talking about because it's a surprise, but it will be tying into the What the Film Festival that I am uh, co-hosting with Peter kaplowski which is happening March 24th and 25th uh, at the Royal Cinema. And I just want
1: to say, unless you're really deeply immersed in you know the things that Justin likes. You probably
0: haven't heard of... <laughs> no. <laughs> you will be very surprised about the main person that we'll be talking so about. So don't
1: bother trying to guess.
0: <laughs> you're not, you're not going to get it. <laughs> I mean, if you follow my Twitter... You will probably know. Okay. Because I do tweet about this person quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, as per usual, you can follow our Twitter at uh, mine is DeClueJ. And mine is Will Sloan, ESQ. And you can follow me on Letterboxd as well at Justin DeClue. And you can also check the notes on this episode by visiting FilmTrap.com. And you'll see it right there on the main page. My name is Justin DeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So I uh, saw Death Wish in theaters, the way that it was meant to be seen, and I was on Letterboxd trying to give it a star rating and I was like, should I give it two stars? or two and a half stars. Whoa, <laughs> that's not the direction I thought you were going to go. <laughs> well, you thought it was going to be like a five star, man? No, I
1: thought it was going to be two stars or one and a half, and... which is the rating I landed on.
0: <laughs> and it made me think, like every time where I'm on Letterbox trying to pick a star rating, what defines the stars that I choose? So I
1: I just gave the bandwagon four and a half stars on Letterbox. Yeah. And then I thought, why not just five? I mean, what, what was what's keeping me from giving it that extra half star? And then I thought, well, maybe I just haven't lived with the movie long enough. Then it'll be a five movie. Yeah,
0: but it'll never be a five movie if you've lived with it long enough. Because usually five stars comes out of like, wow, that was amazing! Five stars!
1: Not always. Oftentimes for me, five stars comes out of a, a longer Like term. nostalgia? Well, no, I like like living in a movie for a much longer time. There are definitely movies that over the years I've come to love more and more.
0: I'm a real three and a half star kind of guy if I like a movie. The non-committal like, oh, I I liked it and you should watch it. But, you know, you're not going to love it. At some point in my mind, I made a decision that like three stars if you like this kind of stuff you can watch it if you have like a lazy sunday afternoon three and a half i would recommend it to you to watch it with reservations with uh even not even that many reservations mm-hmm. four stars is like oh you should watch it even if you don't like this kind of stuff mm-hmm. and above that it's like why aren't you watching this yet but the distinction between four and a half and five to me is very arbitrary yeah well five is probably just like perfect right, right. so that gets people like all ready to type out a response like how dare you get this five stars Ugh. when i look on letter box about a movie I want to watch I genuinely look at people's star ratings yeah. and I go oh okay then I'll watch it because as much as you'll complain about it and I'm sure both of us when we started writing about film we were like well I'm not going to give anything a numerical value right. you can just get it from reading my writing if you should watch it or but not. but that
1: said star ratings are fun <laughs> yes. and, and like we all know what a Roger Ebert three star movie is
0: <laughs> What what is it okay well Shaolin soccer?
1: so I saw I forget who it was so apologies but I saw somebody on Twitter a few months ago say The Foreigner with Jackie Chan is a classic Roger Ebert three star movie Mm. and I thought absolutely (laughs) right and but then i saw somebody else point out that ebert would have definitely given four stars to three
0: billboards outside of ebbing missouri and i thought that's absolutely right too and at the same time <laughs> star ratings only exist to make people angry like it's very rare that like you'll read a critical review unless it's like completely out of this world and you'll be like "Ooh, i'm i'm gonna reply to this but you see someone give like five stars to like even three billboards or something like that. And you're like, what the hell?
1: I respect a guy like Jay Hoberman, where he'll write a long review and you'll read it and you'll be like, I don't even know if that was thumbs up or thumbs down. <laughs> yeah.
0: And he definitely does not give star ratings to stuff.
1: I like a Jonathan Rosenbaum's rating system because it's a little bit pretentious. Oh, I don't even know what it is. Because it's four stars, masterpiece, three stars, must see, two stars, worth seeing, one has redeeming facet. <laughs> And wait so has, and then zero is worthless okay I just like that has redeeming facet I also like you they don't do this in film comments anymore but in their uh, DVD section they used to have a list of you know top 20 releases and then they had a release of recommended and then they had a list of of interest
0: <laughs> I love that idea that all of these movies should be be watched, even though they're not that good, because you're yeah. going to get value out of that. And
1: then you can see like what's in the of interest. It might be something like Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, <laughs> and then you see that, and it's like, okay, it's of interest because he's an auteur.
0: I guess, yeah. <laughs> like, but you know that you're not going to watch it because it is yeah. in that section. I just like,
1: kind of like the snootiness of that. Of interest.
0: (laughs) You know, you should watch it because there's this brilliant two minute segment (laughs) where that really represents them as an artist. But it made me think of this as well, the star writing stuff, because like Netflix has been dropping these movies uh, and there's no time for any kind of like critical reaction. So like people hate it. So everyone's giving it like one, one and a half star Mm -hmm. because it's like this mob mentality like going up against it and you know I'm not going to sit here and defend the Cloverfield paradox Mm. the movie is bad but it's fascinating to see people be like oh it's shit and as a reader you're instantly tuned into it because
1: of that star rating well also I mean everyone has remarked upon this that people especially on Twitter, want something to be a masterpiece Mm -hmm. or want something to be terrible. I mean, uh, the fact that a movie like Three Billboards or a movie like Louis C.K.'s I Love You Daddy, like the reaction was so rapturous before. And then all of a sudden it flipped absolutely in the opposite direction and there was no there was no possibility for anything in between
0: it was crazy it was like almost instant yeah. like
1: boom it's like, yeah th- this movie would have been bad even if the scandal didn't happen you
0: know what i'm giving this zero stars yeah and i'm not even, i'm not defending uh, louis c no, film no. or even three billboards it's just
1: instructive though that yeah. the reaction was so favorable a week before mm-hmm. and
0: then you know but letterbox i think as a platform is very important for the crazy reviewer, and you'll see them whatever movie you click like the people who give every uh, Paul W.S. Anderson film like five stars. Well, these are people who are in my in
1: my opinion kind of play acting and being like <laughs> great critics. Like like there are certain people who have clearly read their Hoberman and, mm. and read their Richard Brody or something and they they're kind of posturing in that direction. And
0: people like I, friends will message me and and go, "Look at this crazy review." And I'll just go, "Okay, you probably just read the first few sentences and then looked at the star rating, but, like, read the review, and it is so disconnected from any kind of reality. Oh, you know
1: what they're doing? They're imitating Jean-Luc Godard at Coyote Cinema. Yeah. Because you'll see something like, um, with War of the Planet of the Apes, uh, Matt Reeves—is that who directed it? Yeah. Matt Reeves uh, achieves Murnau-like effects with light and shadow. <laughs> and-
0: fuck are you talking and that, about and that's
1: just like pretending to be godard but that's w-
0: cosplay <laughs> what do these people like what do they want to get out of it i guess like other like-minded individuals where it doesn't matter what you're writing as long as it's kind of wordy and weaves well, around a maze that leads nowhere
1: well and maybe uh, honestly maybe we're not exempt from this because like you know we put stuff we have a whole fucking podcast where we put our <laughs> opinions on the internet but we but you know people like to um create something that they think is in the tradition of the thing they aspire to so
0: you don't think that they go oh this is how i actually feel about this movie it's more like in the cage cinema style that we need a review that takes this position
1: i think it's i think it's complicated yeah i don't i don't want to do a complete bad faith assumption that they don't like something but i also think there are, well you just need to read the review but you know what there are a lot of factors influencing why we like something mm-hmm. like oftentimes the reaction to something will be so in one direction that th- our contrarian impulse will be a bit like uh pfft. so so you know these are the sorts of factors that, yeah. that, that influence i
0: yeah. think you're giving a little bit too much good faith because you read these reviews and you're like what like this is from nowhere but
1: also people uh, who write those reviews also like to think well i'm a idiosyncratic thinker Mm -hmm. i remember at
0: one point that's
1: a flattering and nice thing to think about oneself